Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Soccer Not Football. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel. And if you're an avid listener of the podcast, you might be wondering where Adela's at. Um, he's on vacation right now. He's out visiting family, uh, getting some getting some good memories in out in England and out in Ghana. So he's enjoying himself right now. So we have a special guest joining me, um, avid USMNT fan and a big fan of Aston Villa, my friend Joseph Ratto. Joseph, thank you for joining us. Oh, no problem, of course. Happy to be here up uh, up the USMNT and uh, up the villa. Yeah, we all know you're you're a bandwagon Villa fan, so we'll we'll get into that later. But uh, yeah. we're here I'm, to. Re- I'm, not, I'm not sure you can really consider people bandwagon Villa fans, but go on. But you are. You, you other people know, but you definitely. Um, so we're going to get into the United States last three games here in the Nations League, and they're they're friendly against Costa Rica. Um, it was a pretty good showing for the United States. They they won every game. Um, looked pretty convincing in some of the matches, and some of the matches. Maybe not that convincing, but they they were able to get the results. And this is almost as great as we could ask for looking at these these three games. Um, let's go one game by one game. We'll start out with Honduras. Um, that game ended one nothing with a, a goal from Jordan Pifok. Um, he wears he also goes by Jordan Sibachu, but I saw on his Twitter handle that he said call me Pifok. So I'm gonna I, go with what he says. I believe- that he goes by that as in uh, that is his mother's maiden name, or I won't say maiden because she might still go by that. But if you're an avid soccer fan, you know that sometimes uh, players go by their, their mother's last name. If in a unfortunate case that their uh, m- maternal name or their father was not, not, or paternal, paternal, I, I apologize, uh, was not around in their upbringing. Right. I think like Sibachu is his common name, but since he's playing for the U.S., he wants to go by PFOC, which is his mother's name. So I'm going to respect that. He scored a, a late goal for us on a header. Um, Joe, do you have any takeaways from this game? Would you uh, what stood out to you who uh, who played well, who played not well? Uh, well, my first takeaway is that, I mean, it it wasn't truly a great performance in that game. They uh, they could have played a lot better. The side maybe wasn't as uh, cohesive as they'd like to see, but it was, it was their first game back in a while in a competitive match. I mean, they played against uh, Switzerland, but that was just a friendly and they, uh, they really had uh, the quote unquote concacafing uh, given to them. But with this uh, young side, I think they were able to handle it pretty well. Their defense, it, it bent, it definitely bent throughout the game, but it wasn't, it didn't break. And uh, they were able to come through. Uh, John Brooks had an, had a great game. And uh, I was just happy to see that uh, Sabachu or Pifok was able to come through in the clutch with that header, which, I mean, if any of you watched the game, it you might have thought it was just like, oh, he, was, he had a header right in front of the goal. But I f- have a feeling that was a bit more of a technical goal than uh, a lot of people think. Yeah, that ball was bouncing in at him at an awkward angle. A little too high for his feet, so he's able to get his head down there and and bang it in past the goalie. I, I totally agree with you on John Brooks. Um, during this window, I I wanted to see if we had any any badasses on the team. You know, any any of those motherfuckers that when the other team's kind of getting chippy, that we'll we'll give him a shoulder right back. You know, when when someone knocks our players down, there's there's going to be a guy having his back saying, "You ain't going to do that shit around here." Like if if you're gonna mess with us, we're gonna mess with you right back. And we definitely saw that from Brooks in this game. Like in the first minute, he knocks over 
Albert, Albert Elise, who is Honduras is probably best attacking player. And he just, you know, lets him know he's there. And I also thought McKinney was kind of like that in this game. He's, he's definitely uh, a rough, a rough player. He knows how to, how to use his body and, and get into people. And he also kind of proved to me that he's, he's the badass of the team and he'll give us that, that strength that we need when maybe we're not playing as great as we are. Like in this game, we didn't, we didn't finish our chances, but uh, when it was time to step up, McKinney provided the the assist and, and Brooks gave him the ball to get the assist. I, I do think technically, I mean, I would definitely give McKinney the assist, but I do think technically on the score sheet, they gave Aronson the assist just because it barely nicked off of his head or leg or whatever it was. But I, I do, I do get what you're saying. I would give McKinney the assist too, but also the other person I'd like to point out in the, like the, I won't say rough play, but kind of rough play that happens in the CONCACAF was, I believe it was in this game when uh, uh, Reyna, like somebody got fouled inside the box and Reyna just ran over and got straight into the Honduran player's face and just, I won't say started yelling at them, but definitely got, got in their face and let them know like, hey, we're here, we're doing this, like be ready for what's about to happen. Yeah, it's hard to imagine sometimes that, that Reyna is only 18 years old. We'll get a little more into this in the Mexico game, but he's just, he's ready for all of it. He, he grew up playing soccer, you know, with his mom and dad, he has that, that pedigree of, of playing at the highest level. And he's still just a kid. He's a lot younger than us. And he's out there not dominating games, but he's putting his, his stamp on the game. He's out there in control. He knows what he's doing. Um, He's really skilled with the ball at his feet. You saw that in the, in the first half of this game, he, he did two guys and then had a shot went wide of the goal. He maybe could have squared it across to, to Sergeant for a tap in, but he, he really has grown into a really, really good player. Um, there's a lot of people online who want to talk about the things that he can't do. They say like, sometimes he, he holds the ball too much and he maybe doesn't have the best body language, which are, which are both valid points. You know, he's, he's still not a perfect player. He's not a finished product, but look at the things that he can do when he's out in the field. And there's t- tons of things that he can do that you cannot teach. And, it's it's his skill that that'll really bring us to to the next level. Exactly. He's he's 18. For an 18 year old, I think almost every American would hope to God that they can only get that good at soccer or at any sport. Like you can't criticize that much. Maybe if he still has these problems when he's like 23, 24, but I have a feeling he'll figure figure this shit out by the time that comes. On to some negative parts about the the Honduras game. Um, I'll start out in the back with Zach Steffen. Wasn't necessarily a bad performance from him. Um, he did make a couple big saves later on in the second half to to keep the game scoreless. But there was a couple moments in the first half where he had a clearance that that ricocheted off the Honduran striker who was pressuring pressuring him, and that was just kind of a nervy moment. And then midway through the first half, he just gets lost on a on a free kick, he comes out, tries to grab it, but gets nowhere near the ball. And then Josh Sargent has to to save a goal with the back of his head, which was an incredible play. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I I was watching that one on the, the Stefan Clarence. I was watching it just thinking, like, does he not see this guy that's running pretty much full bore right at him? I mean, he was still able to get it away, but should he have cleared it straight at the guy who possibly could have ricocheted back off into the goal, or should he have just kicked it sideways out of bounds for a throw in? I mean, I believe the U S ended up 
retaining possession after he kicked it upfield, but he got very, very lucky on that. And the, I, I don't understand how Sargent was able to clear the, that ball off the line with that much power too, because he was running into the goal and cleared it at least to the, like the six yard line, which I, I didn't know that was possible to go have a momentum going one way and just being able to head the ball that far the other way. Yeah, honestly, Sargent's maybe not the best striker. Um, he kind of struggled in the, this window, especially putting the ball in the back of the net. He didn't score any goals, but he's he's a baller. Uh, he goes out there and he he brings his intensity. He brings his running. He he brings his movement. And yeah, he's not scoring loads of goals, but he if he's out there, like that's a guy I want on my team because I know he's he's going to give his 100% effort and he's going to he's going to ball out for the team. He might do something crazy stupid like that where he, he basically kept the game even and potentially you could say gave us the win. Um, another player who I thought was, was pretty poor in this Honduras game was Jackson Ewell. Um, he was playing as the deep line midfielder, the number six, if you might say, um, because Tyler Adams was dealing with back injury, couldn't play the full 90 minutes, didn't play at all in this Honduras game. So, Jackson Yule has has been in there for the last year and a half year um, getting some minutes, but I thought he played pretty poor in this game. Um, he's in there for his supposed passing range. He's supposed to be a, a deep lying playmaker, but he did not unlock anything for us in this game. Um, in the I clocked in the first 30 minutes. He was six for 11 on his forward passes. So 30 minutes into the game, he only tried 11 passes. Six of them were completed. Five of them were completed. And the six that were completed were none of them were like incisive passes, breaking lines. Um, they were all just like a f- pass 10 yards forward to a guy who was wide open. So he, he didn't unlock for anything on the offensive side and his defense is, is not great. He's slow and, and just not a defensive player. Yeah. As, as much as I'd love to see him prosper with the national team, considering he is a, I won't call him the local product, but he, he plays for the San Jose earthquakes and, I would love to see any uh, San Jose player uh, prosper with the national team. But yeah, by the looks of it, it definitely, if Adams isn't able to play in that uh, six role, it definitely looks like Acosta should be the the man starting there. Certainly Acosta or there's a couple of young guys who I, I want to see at the gold cup, but those guys are, are not proven yet. So I think for the future, yeah, for right now it's, it's Acosta. Maybe, maybe we even try like McKinney back there at the six, um, someone like that. Let, uh, um, let Musa and Leggett play a little bit higher up. And if uh, McKinney plays back down. Exactly. And, and I don't, I'm not rooting for Jackson Neal to fail. I don't want oh, it to come across like that, but I'm just talking about his performances from these last couple of games. And I, I just don't think they're, they're up to par for, for national team standards. Um, he's a, he could be a solid MLS player, a good MLS player, but that doesn't necessarily translate to, to the national team. Anything else for Honduras, Joe, or do you want to move on to the, to the big boy game against Mexico? Uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all I got for Honduras. For sure. So yeah, we'll move on to uh, Sunday night's CONCACAF nations league championship game. The inaugural uh, final for the CONCACAF nations league was supposed to take place last year because of COVID got pushed to this year. And if you didn't watch this match, I'm sorry for you because you missed an entertaining game. I uh, yeah, I 
most of you were probably watching the uh, the Mayweather v uh, v Paul fight, and if you paid for it, one, I'm very sorry. If you illegally streamed it, I'm not as sorry, but you still should have watched this game. It was way more entertaining. Absolutely, and this this was a good game for the neutrals because it's it's countries going after each other. It's international soccer, so it's a little different than than Real Madrid, Barcelona, or Bayern, PSG, or any of those European giant games because it's not you don't have the same emotional investment in the game. Um, I was watching with my dad and my brother who aren't super huge soccer fans. They'll watch the world cup. They'll watch Euro cup every, every couple of years, but they were into the game. They were, they were going crazy at the end. I'm just going crazy during the game. Um, the game ended up three, two to, to the United States. Uh, we got goals from Reina McKinney and Pulisic and Mexico got goals from Tecatito and Diego Linus. Um, where do you want to start with this game, Joe? This game was had so many things go on, so much drama, fouls, VAR decisions, kind of crazy goals, people invading the pitch, fans throwing bottles on the field. Where do you, where do you want to start with this one? Uh, I'll start not with like something that actually happened in the game, but I, as much as I am happy that USA won against a fairly strong Mexico team, I would have liked to have seen how they played against maybe a full-strength Mexico team. Because Mexico were still without Raul Jimenez, who is uh, recovering from his head injury that he got with Wolves in the Premier League. Uh, they didn't, uh, Mexico didn't start uh, Guardado. They brought him in like in overtime, if I remember correctly. And I know some people are going to be mixed, mixed uh, feelings about this one, but you could possibly still have Chicharito on this team too. And he was not, I don't think he was even in the camp at all right now. So Mexico were still definitely missing uh, some of their better players or didn't start some of their better players. So I just like to see how they how the U.S. would do against uh, a full strength Mexico team. I, I don't disagree with that, but I think anytime you're in a major tournament like this you're or just any game in general, you're going to be missing a couple players. I agree that Jimenez uh, not playing is a, is a big deal for them. He's world-class striker he's probably the best striker in CONCACAF so without him it's definitely a big blow but you could also say that the United States didn't have two or three of their best players you know Adams didn't start the game he came in off the bench because of an injury we got a couple center backs banged up and are using our third fourth maybe fifth choice center backs out there so it kind of goes both ways I I hear you but you could say that about any team at any point so yeah, yeah we we maybe didn't get the very very best of Mexico but we got the best that they had on the day and our best uh, was better. I, I more just say that considering like if this USA team that they had out on the pitch was able to beat the best best that Mexico had to offer, that really would have shown you where US soccer was at the moment. But I, I totally understand what you're saying. I thought, uh, let's get into some positives. I thought Gio was pretty, pretty dang good in this game. Um, we started off pretty terrible. First minute, Mark McKenzie gives up. He just a bad pass and Tecatito steals it and bangs it in the back of the net. And after 63 seconds, we're, we're down a goal. And certainly in my mind, it just went to bad thoughts immediately. It was like, Oh my God, Mexico's dominating us again. I thought this would be different, but you know, same old, same old U S and um, Gio was kind of the first person to, to put his foot on the ball and just control it. Now maybe he wasn't running up field and, and putting the guy in on goal, but he was just putting his foot on the ball and able to dribble around a couple of Mexico defenders and just kind of calm the game down for us, kind of get us into our groove and just 
relax and play soccer. Yeah, I, I agree. It was definitely good to have him and, uh, it was nice to see Pulisic back on the pitch as well. I mean, he played in the Honduras game, but it was – I feel like he had a bit more of an impact in the Mexico game just uh, just because he had a, a little bit more time with the, the rest of the U.S. players. Coming back straight off of a Champions League final win in the Honduras game, he still might have had a little bit of just – I won't say nerves, but just amped up a little bit too much maybe – and uh, he was probably able to calm himself down and uh, really get himself into this game for the Mexico match. I thought uh, I thought some of our secondary guys who started in this game, like DeAndre Yedlin and Kellen Acosta, I, I don't want to say they played well, but I showed, I'll say that they showed good fight and they showed really good effort there in their positions. Um, I thought Yedlin hasn't played uh, for the national team since, I think, uh, against Canada in the nation's league. So he he's been out of the team for a moment and he was able to do a decent job out there. Um, certainly better than, than Dest was doing. Dest kind of struggled for us. Um, wasn't really able to, to get on the ball. He had one moment where he was able to run past two, three Mexico defenders and, and swing a ball into the box, but it didn't really come to much. And then Acosta had a few decent moments. He also had a couple moments where he just lost the ball or, his, his first touch let him down and let him astray, and you're kind of going, what the heck are you doing? But I've, once he moved to left back, I feel like he kind of also settled the game down and gave us some some de- defensive fight. You know, He was kind of that, that badass in there who maybe he lacked in, in some skill, but he was given his energy and his grit, and that's what powered him over the line. Yeah, I'm, I I'd probably I'd probably say that both of them had a pretty good game considering they're not everyday starters for the for the U.S. Yedlin looked looked solid. He I didn't see him do too much wrong. I mean, I didn't see him do too much great, but he played about how you'd expect him to play, and I I will take that from Yedlin every day. Acosta, on the other hand, I I mean, I could see how he put a few a few feet wrong in the when he was playing in the midfield, but after. Uh, Dest got subbed off and he had to play uh, left back. I thought he played exceptional at left back considering that's not his natural position. And I, I was confused as hell as why he was playing there. But as the more he played there, I was like, I I'll take this. He's playing very well considering that's not what he does. But my other question to you is what, what was this formation that they brought out in this game? Because I I was really just expecting the normal when I saw the team sheet to see the three center backs and have Yedlin and Dest as the wing backs, but it really looked like they had Ream playing left back and Dest as like a left wing almost or left midfielder. Yeah, I think that's what it kind of turned out to be. It it kind of was a, a pretty fluid uh formation sometimes it was four at the back sometimes Des dropped a little further back to to join to make it a five but I think the goal was to try to neutralize uh, Corona Tecatito Corona for for Mexico because he plays out in the right wing so we're we're putting uh, Reem out there but he's going to get exposed because he's just not fast and not going to be able to pick up with with Tecatito so we put Dest out there to just give him another body another guy to have to try to track um just to kind of get the numbers advantage up, you know, when you, when you get the ball out there, you have a, you have an option to pass to, 
and you make them run a little bit more than, than maybe they, they want to run. Um, I kind of, I kind of like the formation change that we had here. I, I thought Burhalter did a, a decent job of just trying to, to try to mix it up and, and make do what we could with our players. Um, I liked his subs, some of his subs. I liked the way of coming in for, for Dest. I really thought he, he also just put some calmness into the game. Um, and and Wea kind of gets in different spurts um, in, the, in the Costa Rica game afterwards. He was kind of more flary and trying to do tricks and dribble skills and, and what, whatnot. But against Mexico, he, he played like he was playing for Lille and just playing super hard-nosed, super defensive. Um, I'm going to get this done. And it might not be super pretty, but I'm going to work hard for my teammates. I'm going to make good passes, make good first touches, and we're just going to string together good moments of possession and good things are going to happen. Sounds good. Uh, my One of my other points I'd uh, like to point out from this game is we finally, like, we've seen it before, but with injuries to players, we haven't seen it that much in uh, the USMNT jersey. Adams, Polisic, and McKinney all on the pitch at the same time. I mean, granted, it wasn't for the whole game, but it was very nice to see all three of them playing together. And with all three of them on the pitch, they were able to – I don't think Adams was on the – no, he he was for the second goal. But, I mean, even with it, he – they probably looked – they looked pretty good with all three of them out there. Yeah, I think coming into this game, they had 63 total minutes together, and then they got – somewhere around like 50 minutes, um, kind of hard to tell because there was so much extra times in, in every period. So they got about, I'd say like 50 minutes because Adams came in probably in like the 70 something minute. Um, but yeah, it was, those are probably our three most important players, three best players. And once Adams came into the game, it, it completely changed because we got a midfielder in there who could not only defend and, and kind of disrupt what Mexico was trying to do, but also just complete passes He's just another guy in the middle of the field who you trust when the ball's at his feet, when the ball's coming to him, that he's not going to have a bad touch or he's not going to have a bad pass, that he's going to be able to control a bouncing ball, come to him, turn, and find the open man. And that just kind of shows what playing for the second-best team in the Bundesliga will do for you. When you're doing that week in and week out at a, at a high level, your level's going to raise. And Adams, I'm – more so after the Costa Rica game, but certainly during this game, he's our most important player, our most uh, irreplaceable player, I should say. Without him, um, we don't have a we don't have a replacement for him. Other guys, you know, Pulisic, Reyna, we'd miss those guys. Brooks, even we'd we'd miss him. But we we have some guys who could fill in and maybe do almost as good as them. But we have no one who who plays like Tyler Adams. Yeah, the, the drop-off at the, at the six is uh, definitely sig- more significant than drop-offs at other positions. I mean, Yule has – he's shown that he can he can do a job, but it's, it's definitely not up to par with what the team needs. And Acosta has shown that he, he can do it too. He can do it a little bit better than, than Yule, but it's, it's nothing compared to what Adams does out there. It's, it's just not – yeah, I, I, there was a tweet some guy had and said the Yule is as close to Adams in the depth chart as he is in the alphabet um, because Y is not very close to the letter A. Uh, I thought that was pretty great. Um, uh, that's a good one. I like that. 
And I can't believe we've made it this far without mentioning the, the probable man of the match, uh, Ethan Horvath, coming in off the bench as a cold goalie. Um, Zach Steffen picked up an injury in this game, a non-contact injury. It looked maybe a little scary, but it, I think it was just a bone bruise, nothing super, super serious. So he won't be out super long. But Ethan Horvath, a guy who spent basically all the year on the bench at Club Bruges in Belgium, um, played the, in that Switzerland game and, and played pretty well, uh, had a few key saves in that game. And in this game against Mexico, he was standing on his head. He was incredible. Um, made three really big saves early or middle of the second half. Um, gave up a goal to Linez, but I would say that's not really his fault. And then at the end of the game in the 124th minute, a Mexico awarded a penalty on a handball. Um, kind of a soft call, but the U.S. also got a soft call for their penalty for Pulisic. So I feel like that kind of evens it out. Um, and Guardado's probably a top 10 Mexico player of all time. He's been there forever and played in La Liga and, and done great things abroad. And he couldn't find a way past him. And, and Horvath collapsed after the game in tears. And I couldn't be happier for him. Yeah, I mean, I to go for the Mexico penalty, one, I, I think I'm just as, as confused as anybody. I mean, watching the replays and with what has been called in the Premier League and some of the other leagues, I'd probably say that unfortunately is a handball but the handball rule is just it's so questionable right now it's 50 50 whether it's going to be called or not called especially when you go to var and when guardado hit it he hit it with a lot of pace so that makes it harder but he definitely get, didn't get it as close to the corner that he wanted to which gave horvath a a, a lot better chance than uh than he would have had if uh, Guardado placed it exactly where he wanted it to. So Daniel, are, uh, are you ready to have the conversation? Is... I have, oh, Stefan over or Horvath over Stefan. I'm, I'm just saying should there be a conversation about it? Oh, there hundred percent should be a conversation. I don't feel Zach Stefan has really, I don't want to say he hasn't earned the number one spot, but I, I think it's a lot closer now that Ethan Horvath stepped in for him and, and played great in big moments. Um, I, can you really think of any big USMNT moments for Zach Steffen? Um, Cause right now, just off the top of the head, like he hasn't had like too many terrible games, but he also hasn't had any super big moments. I mean, getting his move to man city, but that that's, I mean, yeah, he hasn't had any big games. This would have been his big game. If he would have stayed in and made that save against Guardado, then this is probably a completely different situation than we're saying like, oh, Stefan's the number one, but we just have a really good number two in Horvath. But because I, I thought Horvath, even though he led in two goals in the Switzerland game, he still had a really good game. So I, I thought it was just, oh, the USA has a better second keeper than I thought they did. But now it's really turning into should this man overtake Stefan for the number one? And I'm not leaning either way at this point. Of course, I have no say. It's all up to Burholter and his staff, but it's it's getting a lot more uh, foggy in that area than uh, coming into this camp. 100% agree with you on that one. Yeah, I, I feel like Stefan was in pen as our starting goalie, and now he's in, he's in pencil, or he might not even be on the team sheet. It might just be blank, and then, whoever Burhalter feels is, is hot or 
or who he needs in there but between the pipes he's going to put in there. And I think that's not the worst problem to have, to have multiple goalies vying for a position. I think it's obviously great if you can get someone like a Kaylor Navas or, um, you know, like a Buffon, someone in there who's just, you know, you're, it's going to be there in, for a decade and going to be solid between the pipes. But Zach Steffen really isn't that. Um, he's not the best sh- shot stopper. He, he has some crazy moments like he did against Honduras. Um, and I think Horvath has proven that he's ready for the challenge and, Hopefully he gets a, a move to a decent club team this summer where they'll actually play him and we'll actually be able to say uh, for these upcoming qualifiers that we have a goalkeeping competition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's part of the problem with both of these goalies is that they're at their clubs, they're both the backups. For Stefan, he's playing behind Ederson, who there's no way that he's going to beat him out on merit. He'd have like Ederson would have to get an injury for Stefan to be the number one. And I mean, it's a, it would be a little bit easier for uh, Horvath to beat out uh, Simone Mingale at a, uh, at club Bruges, but I still don't think that's going to happen. You'd probably still need an injury there for him to be the number one. So it would definitely be nice for both of these goalies to get a, get a loan out over the summer and uh, have their chance to be a number one goalie at a, at a club next year this was our first win versus mexico since 2013 so it had been a minute before we were that how that we have beaten them so this even though this game is not i I did not realize that that is that is pretty insane i did not realize that yeah i mean that's pretty yeah for our biggest rival they definitely had a kind of over back overtaken us as the the supreme dog in in concacaf and I think after this game, I've definitely felt that that some of the Mexican fans are a little more quiet. You know, they're definitely thinking like, you know, we, we gave them our best shot and we weren't able from a Mexico fans perspective, yeah. perspective, they were thinking we gave them our best shot and we weren't really able to beat them. And our team, our linchpins are, are aging and their team is, is young and up and coming and probably only going to get better because they have, more youngsters in their pipeline who who knows where they're going to be in two, three, four, five years. So I think Mexico is never going to fear us. They're never going to be scared of us because that's just, that's just their, their soccer culture, their, their way. But I feel like if you're, you're an L3 fan with some sense that you're kind of, you know, you're looking back at us, like, you know, worried, you're, you're worried about us, maybe, maybe overtaken. Yeah, and I think the biggest, like you said, the biggest thing with that is the the age within the two squads. Like the L tree, I don't know what the average age of the players on the pitch were for that game, but I'm sure L tree at least had probably four to five years on all of the players for for the USA team. So it's it's just a matter of time before. I mean, I'm sure Mexico has some good up-and-coming players that just haven't been able to crack the the national team yet, but it's it's looking very promising for the USA right now. And my my last thing that I'd like to talk about from that game, I'm I'm not going to talk about you if you want to bring up the fans and uh, what happened with Reyna and I forget which Mexico player got hit as well, but. If you want to bring that up, we can bring that up after this. But the last thing actual soccer wise in that game that I want to talk about is how good were the USA on set pieces? They were, they were amazing. They scored two of their goals 
off of set pieces. They absolutely dominated the Mexico defense on on the corner kicks. I I don't think I've seen that much dominance off of corner kicks in a single game in a while. It looked like every time the USA had a corner kick that they were they had a free header that they got a shot on goal. I just hope that they're able to carry this on uh, continually and that the USA are to being able to uh, continue their dominance on corner kicks and set pieces. It's interesting that you bring that up because I think before this, we hadn't scored a corner kick since the 2019 Gold Cup. So it had been like 10 or 12 games since we last scored on a, on a set piece. And this, just for whatever reason in our, and our game against our biggest rival, Weston McKinney, decides to to put his spring shoes on and just out jump everybody. Um, I've he I've always known he's super good in the air. That's probably his one of his best traits is his aerial ability, and he absolutely was dominant in this game. He uh, headed the ball that hit the post that Reina put in off the rebound. He scored our second goal off a corner kick. Um, before he scored a second goal, like two or three minutes before on a corner kick, he had a goal that Ochoa had to make a nice save on. And McKenzie had a had a had a had a header too that also uh, Ochoa made a header or a save on. It wasn't quite as hard of as a save that uh, McKinney had on that one that you're talking about, but it was another shot on goal from a corner. Yeah, we got we got some guys who can jump in there, and, and against Mexico, we were able to exploit that. So that's that's good to see. Hopefully, we can continue that. Hopefully, we don't go another ten games without scoring a, a corner kick goal because. I mean, that's, that's who our guys are. Our guys are athletic. They can, they can jump, they can get after it like that. If you add Daryl DK to that mix, it's only going to get, going to get better for, for that kind of stuff. So I feel like we should expect our, our team to be, to be good in there. Um, I, I, I don't really want to bring up the fan stuff. I think it's kind of, if you're throwing stuff at players are kind of trashy, like get that out of here. I know that's accepted in other parts of the world, but I just feel like if I walked up to you, or like your grandma threw a water bottle at her, you would, you'd probably try to murder me. And that's probably fair. You know, if I'm just throwing random crap at you on the street, you're not going to take that. So why, why can you throw it at soccer players? You know? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely not good to see all the, uh, the abuse that both sides in the end ended up getting from the fans. Cause I mean, I don't think the, the fans meant for the Mexico player to get hit, but they it ended up happening and i will say i don't like to see it but it was fairly funny to see that one fan in the broadcast jump behind the the people on the uh at the desk where clint dempsey was and everybody else they i I think they were all just in shock i don't know where that man went how far of a fall it was i mean i just for his well-being i hope he's okay but i do hope that he got, I won't say that he got what's coming to him, but at least got a stern talking to that that shouldn't happen again. But that was fairly funny to see that that happened on live TV. Yeah, I didn't even see that live. I saw that back on, on Twitter after just because I was I was probably just pacing around nervous as, as a nervous wreck during the game. So I missed that when they cut over to them. But yeah, we uh, we beat Mexico for the first time in 8,000 8, years, so good on the uh, U S men's national team for that. And uh, to top this game off, we, we threw a party against Costa Rica three days later. Um, we played most of our backups guys like Wea and Aronson 
DK, Yunus Musa got a start in this game. Um, all came out and performed very well. We got a, a 4-0 win over Costa Rica. Granted, Costa Rica also heavily rotated their squad, so it was a, a mostly second team for them, but it was also mostly a second team for us. So I think there's lots of positives to take away from this game. Uh, anything you want to talk about first, Joey? Uh, I'll just say that, like you said, it was mostly backups that played this game, and considering – we did win 4-0. I'd like to say that it looks like the USMNT have a very good, like, 23 within their camp. Like, I don't know how much. It looks like a fairly steep drop-off after that 23, considering what happened in Olympic qualifying and everything. But the 23 that they have, if everybody stays healthy, I think is – Fairly formidable. I don't know how how well that they'd be able to do against maybe some of the top European and South American squads, but within CONCACAF, they're easily top two on par. I would say fairly on par with Mexico right now, and I think that is a very good sign to come considering how young most of those people in the 23 are. Yeah, I feel like it's not even that controversial to say, but I feel like we're definitely more talented than Mexico. That doesn't necessarily mean we're a better team, um, but I think just the the quality and the quantity of players that we have are just at a higher level than Mexico are at right now. Um, you look at guys like Wea and Aronson; those guys just offer so much creativity, so much skill as our backup wingers. Um, you even go back like two years ago, our our wingers would have been like guys like Tyler Boyd and Paul Ariola, and even Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris is all right, but. Guys like that are definitely not the same players that that Way and Aronson are. Um, certainly not the attacking threats that those guys possess. Yeah, I mean, considering Aronson played in in the Champions League this past year, Wea played. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know how much he played this season, but he played on a team that won League One, and I it's it's just good to see. I mean, I do, I do think Jordan Morris has a say to be in this squad. When he is healthy, he will definitely be in it. He just has to come out and prove himself that, hey, I am still here, I am still good, and I can, I can vie for one of these positions out here. I don't disagree with that. I think, unfortunately for him, just because of his, the nature of his injury um, and the players on the, the rise that he might be, that odd man out when it comes to uh, picking a team for, for the world cup when we, yeah. when we make it. Cause if we don't make the world cup this time, um, I'm just going to never watch soccer again. I definitely wouldn't go that far. I'd still watch the world cup, but yeah, I'd be very, very disappointed if, if the USA somehow crumble in the Ocho, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree that Morris has a, has a very tall task on his hand. But I do think that Burhalter should give him a chance and be, and he should at least be in the 23 that when he's healthy, when he's healthy at least. Am I crazy to say that I should expect us to get at least seven points in home games against Honduras, Costa Rica, and Mexico? Um, six at the very least. I feel like after these three games that we've proven that we should be at least be able to, to beat two out of three of those teams at home. Is that too high of an expectation because I feel like if we want our our team to be good we have to set expectations for them and I feel like for me that's a realistic expectation seven points 
six points at the minimum. If you get five points, that's kind of a failure. If you're tying two of those games and only winning one, I feel like you're kind of you're kind of slipping. I I definitely think the USA should be beating Honduras without question. That that should be an afterthought. At home, I mean, they at still home. They, they yes at home. They should still. I mean, it'll be it'll be a tough test considering that all the Concacaf nations at the at their peak of uh, of play with all of their players, assuming all their players are healthy, will be a tough game considering how physical the games get within Concacaf. But Honduras should be a win. I mean, I know the USA just beat Costa Rica 4-0, and it was backups v. backups, so you'd be assuming that starters v. starters would be a win for USA, but Costa Rica does have probably a top five, top ten goalie in the world that wasn't playing in that game, so I don't know how much he would have helped that game per se, but that's going to be a huge boost to them. And then Mexico, that can go either way. That can really go either way at this point. Like you said, the USA, like I said, I didn't know this. The USA just beat them for the first time in eight years. So the USA could easily come out and just lose to Mexico again, like 3-0, 2-1, whatever the score might end up being. So I, as much as I'd love to see them get seven points, I think realistically – probably five or six points would probably be where they're where they will end up sitting six i would be content with five i would be disappointed with i feel like we definitely should should get the job done against these teams if we want to consider ourselves like better than our program once was or progressing i feel like those are fair but uh hard expectations but i feel like our guys should definitely be able to to reach that um, going back to the to the Costa Rica game for a sec, I thought Yunus Musa proved why he should be in our starting eleven. Just both sides of the ball, um, dueling, winning tons of duels, completing passes forward. Um, maybe not the best finisher. He had a couple chances that he he scoffed wide both times, but that's not really what his role is. His role is to be kind of a more advanced Tyler Adams, and I think when him when Adams and Musa are together, they're just, they're just a buzzsaw. They cut out everything. They cover so much ground and they're calm with the ball. And they're also comfortable without the ball, which is, is something that not all of our players offer us. Yeah. I mean, I, in a perfect world, I would love to see the midfield of McKinney, Musa and Adams, but for some reason, Burhalter doesn't exactly see it that way. Considering Musa didn't get any playing time in the, in the nation's league against uh, uh, Honduras and Mexico. And yeah, if, when he's in there, it looks like Musa plays the true eight. McKinney can push up a little bit further and play the pseudo 10. And uh, Adams is sitting back and playing the six and just sitting right in front of the defense. It, in on paper, it works perfectly. And that's what you'd love to see. But Burhalter sees it differently a little bit. And I don't, completely understand why but I think especially after that Costa Rica game that Musa showed enough granted it was against the or it was against the backups for Costa Rica or at least half backups against Costa Rica that he probably should be starting Leggett has been 
playing pretty well. He does a solid job considering he's not playing in a European league. He's not playing in a top league. And I, he's definitely better than Yule or he's a slightly better than Acosta right now, just considering Costa has a little bit more experience and for how young uh, Musa is. But Musa has the higher upside. If you really want to push this USMNT team to the next level, I think you just got to give him the game time and have him play as much as you can and get him have him get the experience. I I feel like <clears throat> Legette kind of took a step back in my book, maybe a half step back, um, just because he was a little disappointing in, in his appearances in these games. I feel like um, – back in 2020 and early in 2021, just whenever he played, he was in the right moments and, and was decisive with his, with his play. But in these last couple of games, he just, he just kind of drifts out of the games for me. He doesn't get on the ball enough to, to create. And then he doesn't offer you that defensive bite that guys like Musa and Adams and even McKinney do. Um, he's a decent backup for us. I think I've said that in the past that I'm fine with him as our fourth. I'm I'm really fine with him as our fifth center mid. Um, but I just feel like I wanted him to be able to take over that starting role. But just for me, he, he lacks that. I don't even know what it is. He just lacks that game breaking attribute about him. He doesn't do one thing great. And that holds him back a little bit. I mean, I'm I'm perfectly fine with having him as our fourth. I think Legette does he the thing is he doesn't do anything super great, but he doesn't do anything super bad either. He is what I would call slightly above average for the US player pool. And he like I, I do agree that he has he did fall off a tiny bit within this four game uh, uh, camp that the U S had, but he did still score the goal. He was in the right place at the right time against Switzerland. He was able to get there. And then against Honduras, the whole team didn't play too well against Honduras. The, that wasn't just a legit thing against them. And then he didn't get the start against Mexico. So he wasn't able to like play a full 90 against them. And then against uh, against Costa Rica, he didn't really have to do too much. It was a lot on the wingers and Wea and Aronson and uh, DK's not a winger, but I'll say the front three. They played a lot better. Well, not a lot better, but they played very good against a second-class Costa Rica team. So he didn't really have to do too much. He just got to sit back and watch – them and Musa and Adams. He just got to be the one to be like, Hey, I'm here. I'm going to do what I need to do, but I'm not going to push myself to really do extra at this point. I think he's fairly good for a fourth option. Yeah. I don't hate him as a backup. Um, and I, I like this Costa Rica game because it, it was a, uh, Example of what we're going to get during World Cup qualifying when we play three games in eight days or nine days or whatever we're going to do. So we are going to have to rotate. We're going to have to use backups. 
Um, Costa Rica is going to have to do that. Honduras is going to have to do that. So every game, you're not going to get the other team's 1A team. You're going to get some rotated pieces. And that's what this Costa Rica game made me most excited about is that our backup guys are in most positions. There's not a huge drop off in. Like if yeah. we don't have Pulisic or Reyna, obviously those guys are our starters, but Aronson and Weah, I am more than happy to see those guys on the field. Um, even even Mark McKenzie at the back, we should mention, was the only player to play all four games. And um, he was racially abused after the Mexico game because he he had a he had a couple bad moments, but that's no reason to be a racist asshole. So if you if you're doing that crap online, you're not part of the uh, the USMNT fan group um we don't want you we don't want you with our with our group um and he came back and he showed that he's he's not going to take that and you can't break his spirit so um i love you mark mckenzie for that you're you're a real a real hero um i i he has a podcast orange slices i'll shout him out um he does interviews with current players former players i think you should definitely check him out he just gives you that that rawness from a pro athlete and he's a, he's a pretty down to earth, cool guy. So heck yeah, Mark McKenzie. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that was the whole reason why Burhalter had the friendly against Switzerland at the beginning of this camp and the friendly against Costa Rica at the end of this camp. Cause he wanted to see how, uh, how the players stamina held up throughout a four game camp in a short period of time considering that within when U.S. qualifying starts that they're going to have to play three games within a short period of time. So, and then also, yes, shout out Mark McKenzie. Yes, he had a few mistakes against Mexico. Yes, he let in that first goal. But I think he still had a very, very solid camp considering how young he is. And he's, what, he, he's a gank, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I don't know how many games he started or played at Gank, but he's still he's still playing pretty damn well for how shallow really the US center back pool is. Yes, they have they have Chris Richards who wasn't wasn't seen in this camp. They have John Brooks is obviously gonna be starting if he's healthy. That's that's without a question. But I think overall McKenzie has thrown his hat in. Because we haven't seen too much from Richards. I want to bring up Justin Che later. Like he's he's somebody who's very experimental, very young, who I think is is much for the future, but looking very solid for Bayern too. And then what Aaron Long got hurt. I, I think Aaron Long's solid, but he's what, like mid twenties. He's, he doesn't have too much growing to do 27, 28, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yes, Miazga plays for, for a top team in Belgium, but he's the same as Aaron long. He doesn't have too much growing to do. Burhalter and uh gank can really mold McKenzie into something that can be pretty damn good. Definitely above long and uh, Miazga. So I am not mad at all for how much he played throughout this camp either. No, neither am I. I'm, I'm always rooting for Mark McKenzie. And, and honestly think about that mistake he had in that first minute, how many people um, would bury their heads and, and let that affect them the rest of the game. He was able to, to put it behind him and still put in a, in a great shift with, with his heart on his sleeve. And he was able to make a bunch of key defensive plays. Um, unfortunate to give away the handball late in the game, but then, 
his boy Ethan Horvath came up with the big save. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with him as our as our backup center back, or even if he breaks into the starting lineup, I I'd be okay with him pairing with Brooks. Um, any takeaways? Any last takeaways from the the Costa Rica game before we look more big picture? Well, I just wanted to give maybe one or two last points on Mackenzie. One on the goal that he gave away. That's that's just what you do playing under Bull, uh, Burhalter and trying to play out of the back. You're gonna make mistakes sometimes like that. Burhalter doesn't want you to just get the ball as a center back and boot it up the field all the time. He wants you to try to play out the back. Mistakes are going to happen like that. Shit happens. And unfortunately, McKenzie just didn't play the ball a little bit further back to McKinney and gave up a goal. Like, it, you'll probably see that one or two more times within the next, I don't know how, how long, but you're going to see that again at some point. And two... For the handball, like I said already, the handball rule is just it's it's up for grabs at this point, whether it's a handball or not. It's up to the ref's discretion whether the ref thinks that they didn't have enough time to pull his hand away. I in this instance, his hand was definitely further off from his body than a quote unquote natural position. So I do think they probably got the call right, but it the handball rule, especially when you go to VAR, is just a coin toss at this point. But other than that, I'm I'm good to go from the from the Costa Rica game. Yeah, I'll just mention the goal scorers real quick from the Costa Rica game. For, forgot to do that at the beginning, but we had Aronson scoring first, Daryl DK getting his first goal for the US men's national team. Then we had uh Reggie Cannon with actually a pretty nice outside the the box left foot shot um from our from our left back slash right back. Um, and then we had Gio Reyna winning and scoring a penalty um, coming on as a sub late in the game. Yeah, the, the last thing I'd like to say, considering all the goal scorers, is that the the goal scoring age in that game was probably, the average age was probably around 21-ish. Like, that's kind of crazy. All those guys are extremely young. If that doesn't show you where the state of U.S soccer is at this point and how much we have to grow and how much potential there is in this team shout out Alex Argeta and Matt Bacon I know they'll hate me using the word potential but that's that's just what it is people have room to grow and they will grow at this point I'm not saying they might grow this team is good enough that I think a lot of the players will grow and will get better in the coming years absolutely it would be super disappointing if our if our guys don't improve um, let's, let's look big picture. Now we can take a more broader view of, of these three games and where this leaves the U S men's national team now and where it puts them for world cup qualifying starting in September. Um, I think first off, first and foremost, I think we have our, our core group of guys who we know is in our first team. I think pretty unequivocally, our five best players are any order of Gio Reyna, Weston McKinney, Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams and John Brooks. And that's basically our spine right there. That's two midfielders of center back and two wingers. Um, and, and those guys are all pretty young. Rain is 18 McKinney and Adams and Pulisic are 22, maybe 23. And uh, who did I miss out? John Brooks is, he's a little older. He's 28, but that's our, that's our core right there. And we're, I'm, those guys need to be our stars over this uh, campaign. They, these guys can, take us to our highest heights 
Um, and I, I, I will say that I still would put Tyler Adams number one just because he's the most irreplaceable player on that list. You can argue John Brooks, but I think Adams just offers more than a little more than Brooks, and he's more irreplaceable. I, I agree. I mean, like I've said multiple times in this, uh, in this podcast, that uh, that the Costa Rica team was a second team, but Brooks didn't play at all that game. It was Reem and McKenzie starting at center back, and they they held a clean sheet. They were able to do that. So that just goes to show that, and considering that Tyler Adams started and played about 60 minutes that game, that goes to show that Brooks is a little bit more replaceable than Adams is. And my biggest takeaway from this entire camp is who's starting at striker? Sergeant, Sergeant looks good. He's solid. He can do a lot of the things, but he just doesn't – I won't say he doesn't have that clinical striker uh, asset in him, or but he he didn't score a goal throughout these four games. If anything, if he – if Burhalter wants to get the best out of him, he might have – I won't say he has to switch up the position, like the formation, but he might have to play him as a, like a – kind of like a false nine, like how Liverpool play Firmino as a false nine. Come back in, get the ball maybe a tiny bit deeper, play it out to the wings, Pulisic and Reyna, and let them do their stuff. Yeah, I would like to see DK play with uh, Pulisic and Reyna and see how he can work off them Um, because he offers something different. He's just a a fullback, a tight end out there who – who's a physical presence, but he's also good with his feet, good with his movement. And he's only improving too. He's still 21, 22 years old and Sergeant's only 20 years old. So both those guys are young strikers, still developing, still um, harnessing their, their strengths. And I think that position's more wide open. I was, I was pretty firm that Sergeant should be our starter and he got the starters minutes during this camp, but he didn't uh, solidify the job for himself. He certainly didn't play terrible, but he also didn't do himself any favors by not scoring any goals. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I it, it's really a three-man competition because even though like I, I love to see DK play just because of how physical he is and how much he can bully the other the opposing team center backs. But PFOC really has, I mean, assuming he can get healthy, I don't know exactly what happened to his knee against Costa Rica and how serious of an injury it is. But if he can come back healthy in the next camp, I think he is a real, real conversation about, Hey, I should be playing. I should be starting at the striker position. He pretty much starts plays most games for, for young boys in Switzerland. Correct. Yeah. So he, he gets he's playing a lot of game time. I know all three of them are basically getting starting minutes at their clubs. I don't know what is going to happen with DK in the summer, whether he's going to get a move to England or whether he's just going to stay back with Orlando City. But all three of them have a have a very good chance. And Burhalter has a very big decision on his hand about who he wants to start as striker because PFOC has like he might not have. The physicalness as DK, he's still fairly physical, but he's not as physical as DK. And he might not have the ability to maybe drop in and do some of the other stuff 
that a sergeant does as play in the midfield. But for some reason, I just have this feeling that PFOC has this most clinical. He's most clinical in front of goal. Like DK is fairly clinical for how, considering how much he scored for Barnsley in his short time there. But PFOC has, he's been clinical too for his time at Young Boys. Yeah, I, I feel like he's uh, the in-between, the sergeant and DK. Sergeant's kind of the the scrappy run around forward and DK's the the strong target man and and Cibichu or PFOC is is in the middle of that. Um, if if Orlando City holds on to DK and doesn't sell him, I will take a flight to Orlando and verbally assault their their general manager, their director of soccer, because you cannot let that man stay in MLS. I'm sorry. He is too good, too talented, too skilled to to spend another season in MLS. I mean it it just depends because I I've heard there's been rumors that I mean that this was of course when uh Jose Mourinho was in charge of uh was managing Tottenham that Tottenham were interested in in uh oh god DK in, in DK but I don't know what other I don't know if there's a Premier League team that's really interested in him right now there might be another championship team that's interested in him but I don't know if a championship team is willing to spend 10 million pounds or dollars on a, on an MLS player at the moment. So he really might come back and play another half a season in the MLS. And then maybe in, in in the January window, he might be able to hopefully get bought by one of those teams, but most likely go out on loan again. And hopefully if, cause like Barnsley, if they were to have, gotten promoted instead of Brentford I think he'd be there'd be no question he'd be bought by Barnsley for probably about 15 million and he'd be in the Premier League without a question but because that didn't happen there is a large chance that he is probably going to go back to Orlando City play another half the season there and get transferred out on loan again to the to the championship that's disappointing to hear um, I just, I mean, like, it is disappointing to hear, but I, I'm just telling what I believe is the truth at this point. Right, right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying it's your fault or anything. I just, I feel like only bad things can happen from that because if he scores a bunch of goals in MLS, people are just going to be like, oh, it's MLS. And if he goes and plays and doesn't score a bunch of goals, they're going to say he can't even score goals in MLS. Or super, super worst case, he gets injured and that sets him back however long he gets injured for, so. I really hope he can move somewhere in Europe. If it's England, if it's the Bundesliga or Serie A, somewhere where where he'll get decent minutes and hopefully will will perform overseas. Even even if he got a, a transfer to like where uh, PFOC is in Switzerland or in the Netherlands, just somewhere in Europe where he can go out somewhere in Europe in a European first division, go out and show out that he can play with these players, maybe not score extensively, but go out, score a few goals and show that, Hey, I am physical. I can do this. I can play at this level. That's all you need to see from him as I mean, I don't want to see him go back to the MLS considering how well he played for Barnsley in those six months. But that's, that's just what I think is going to happen at this point. I feel like against really good European and South American competition, DK should be our striker up front. And instead of trying to play off the back or anything, we should just 
lump balls up to him, kind of like Barnsley do, and have our two wingers running off him to to try to create chances that way. I think that would be a, a really good way to to not play pretty soccer, but to play our most effective soccer is just to to put Daryl up front and and have Weston and John Brooks and and Tyler Adams aiming for his head, and then having Wea and Pulisic or or Reina to or Aronson, any of those four guys running off him and trying to to win those second balls. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that's what you're saying. Like it all depends on what competition we're playing. If we make it to the world cup, which I'm assuming and hoping we do, then probably DK is not the best option when we play against maybe the African or Asian or European teams. But if we're playing against other teams in like CONCACAF or maybe even the, the South American division, that might be the best way to go and just have him bully around the other teams, the opposing team center backs and just lob deep balls up and hope that he can get ahead on it and let Pulisic and Reyna try to get to the second ball. But against the European teams, we probably need more of a, of a PFOC or a, or a sergeant to help us truly play out of the back so they can drop in deeper. Yeah. Um, I think nine, the nine position, the striker position has been our biggest question for since 2014, I'd say. Um, Cause Josie's been in and out just with injury and stuff. Um, well, yeah. I'd, I'd say Josie has like night 2019 and before assuming that Josie was healthy, he was always going to be the starting striker, but it was just a matter of if he could stay healthy. Yes. Right. If he could stay healthy and if he could stay in form, because there were also times where Josie was healthy, but maybe not playing up to his peak to, to where he needed to be. Um, I feel like I don't want to say Dest took a step back in this this window, but he definitely didn't have his best performance. Um, I'm hoping I'm not making excuses, but that's because this was the end of his pretty much his first season playing abroad in Europe. Yeah, he played last year for IX, but the season was cut short. So I, this was his first year playing week in and week out for, for a European side. And then he he came over here to to play in these last three, four games. And he just lacked a little bit of energy, lacked a little bit of his uh, precision. He's usually really good with his first touch. And there was a couple of times where that let him down in these couple of games. So I, he didn't take a step back in my eyes, but I definitely will be watching him to see if he comes back rejuvenated next season for Barcelona. Yeah. I mean, Serginho, he's definitely like fully healthy. He's definitely the first back or wing or wing back that's written on the team sheet. Yes. He didn't have the greatest of games in this four game camp, but he's what he's only 18, 19. Correct. I think he's 20, but Either way, he's still very young. He still has a lot to learn, too. It was his first season with Barcelona. He won a trophy. He's probably, like you said, he played a decent amount of games for Barcelona. He's probably just a bit tired as well. He He played against Switzerland. He played against Honduras. He played against Mexico. He just has a lot to learn. He's still very young, and I'm I'm not concerned. Yes, he, he didn't look as great as he had in the past for the U.S. and for club, 
but I still think he's he's just he's doing fine. It's all a matter. It's all the ebbs and flows of how how a player goes in their career. Yes, yeah. The this U.S. men's national team isn't perfect. Certainly, we're far from perfect right now. Um, still a lot of growing pains. Still a lot of mistakes that we're making. But you can see the progress. You can see where the team was in 2019 when we got whacked three nil by Mexico in a friendly, um, and to this past weekend where we went down twice to Mexico. We were losing at two different points in the game, and their spirits didn't break. They they found a way to dug, dig themselves out and found a way to, yeah, McKinney was swinging his magic wand to, to Harry Potter us back into the game. And I think the future is bright for, for us. I know people have been saying that for, for pretty much 50 years now that soccer's up next in the United States. But now we actually have a pipeline of young talent playing in Europe. We have tons of guys playing in Champions League. Um, that pipeline's not stopping anytime soon. MLS is actually producing guys that can play soccer at a young age. We have 16, 17, 18 year olds getting professional minutes in MLS and then going abroad and, and growing into to bigger and better players. Um, you look at Gio Reyna, he's only 18 years old and he's a grown ass man out there on the field. So he's definitely one of a kind, but uh, he's there's other guys like him coming up behind him trying to take his spot. So hopefully we get some, some good competition with the guys and that only improves them. Yeah. I, as an 18 year old Gio Reyna, not only physically on the field, but just like how his face looks. I don't think I've seen a more like just adult 18 year old in my life. Just, he just looks the part that he's like 25 already, but moving, moving a bit on, I have two questions for you, Daniel, that, like just overall encompassing this this four game camp just an easy yes or no question should Yunus Musa be starting 100 percent yes he should definitely be our second eight sorry you could you could finish the question so other no 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 need no need he was gonna ask if Yunus Musa should start for the for the U.S. and 100 percent yes I was going to say within a full strength squad, assuming everybody's healthy, but yes, I, I agree with you. I think he brings something a tiny bit different. He has a little bit more control of the ball than legit or Acosta or Yule. And I, he can push the ball up like further up to field. He can carry the ball better than both of those guys can. For some reason, I still don't understand why Borhalter didn't play him in either of those games. But I really hope that Burhalter sees what most of the U.S. MNT fans, U.S. MNT fans see within Musa, and that he can't play that role in big games. Maybe he just thinks he's too young and needs a little bit more experience. So hopefully he'll get those that game time in U.S. qualifying or something like that. But I, I, I'm with you. I think he should be starting. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you said, he's a good ball carrier. Good dribbler of the ball, um, solid passer. Maybe he doesn't have the the passing range of an Andrea Pirlo or an Iniesta, but not many people can pass. Who does? Like, uh, Who does? Yeah, yeah, no, one hundred. No, I'm one hundred percent. Not those guys are. I'm saying those guys' names for a reason because not many people are good like them. And he's good defensively too. He's good. Uh, he's good in the air for a short little guy. He's he's good at winning headers. Um, just good at winning the ball back. He's not going to make the 
the sports center top 10 play. He's not going to have the skill three guys and then score a goal, but he'll, he'll win a dirty play in the middle, not win a dirty play, but there'll be a, just a lobbed ball in the middle and he'll find a way to win it back and keep possession. And those things add up over time and it's not game breaking necessarily, but it's positive for the team. Yeah. And my, uh, my second question for you is a little bit more complex. How long until we see Brian Reynolds and Justin Che within this 23 camp? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, for Brian Reynolds, I did see Brian Reynolds. He was, he was there. He was in polo, but he never made a game in uniform. So at least he was there. He was the, and if those of you who don't know, Brian Reynolds is a right back from FC Dallas that has made the move to, uh, to Roma, who is now coached by uh, Jose Mourinho. So hopefully he'll be able to get some game time and learning un- under Mourinho, who will, uh, which will help him in the long term. But And like I said before, Justin Che is a center back with Bayern too, which hopefully he will get bought by Bayern within the coming year or two, which would be a very good uh, – good place for him to be just like uh chris richards is but yes daniel i'd love to hear your take on this um i'm gonna have an interesting take on this because i feel like i'm not rooting for this but i feel like brian reynolds is going to be a flop i feel like his time in europe is going to be cut short uh he definitely has the the talent and the potential to be good but he hasn't really proven it um, and it's not that I don't see it. It's just we have a ton of guys making the move over right now and not everyone can turn into a good player. And I think he's unfortunately going to be one of the players who took the step too soon and is just not at the quality of a of a European player. Um, and Justin Shea, I'll say after this World Cup, so after the 2022 World Cup, he'll join. So like 2023, 2024. He'll join the group because he's only 17 right now. So he, he still has a lot of room to, to grow. Uh, but I feel like in two to three years, that'll put him in, in the driver's seat to, to earn a spot on the team. Kind of like Chris Richards. Um, some people were, were calling for Richards when he was at Bayern 2 last season. And then this season, he gets a little more minutes in the Bundesliga. So, so he catches the eye of Berhalter. Um, I think so. Yeah. Once Che gets some first team minutes for whatever team he's playing on, he'll, he'll get called into to camp. Yeah. I, I won't say I agree with you that uh, Reynolds will be a flop, but I do think he definitely made the the move to Europe a bit early considering he only played about half a season for FC Dallas before he made the, the move over. And the only reason I might disagree with you about Justin Che is because I feel like Burhalter might want to get, his eligibility for the U.S. just tied down as soon as he can. Because if he waits that long for about two years, Justin Che might be impressing so much that he might choose, I believe it's Germany, correct? That is a second. Okay, yes, it is Germany. That Germany might, I mean, they they have a more of a stacked squad than USA does. So I don't know where they would find the the place for him to be on the team, but Germany might convince him to say, hey, you're a really good young center back. Play for us instead of the USA. 
So that's the only reason I believe that Justin Shane might make an appearance sooner than that for the USA. That's a good point. That's a good point. People were also making that that point about Yunus Musa because there was some confusion if he has been cap tied yet or not, and he has been cap tied, so he cannot go play for. Was it the four friendlies? Yeah, it was the. I think it was actually three friendlies. He was cap tied when he played against Northern Ireland. Okay. He was cap tied in the last round of friendlies we had against Jamaica and Northern Ireland. So, um, I, yeah, I could see that with Che that they want to get him in here. I think that's why they called him into this just to be like, Hey, we're looking at you. We know you're, you're progressing. We know you're a stud. So, so think about us. I think we got to give Burhalter some credit with his recruiting. Um, if one thing he's done, he's definitely grabbed some players who maybe not were on the fringes, but, in the past U S soccer would have forgotten about or not even gone for guys like Dest, Musa, um, even Efrain Alvarez. Um, he's still deciding between Mexico and, and the U S but it, re- it, re- it does, it does seem like from what I've heard, it seems like he's going to choose Mexico though. Yeah. But I, I feel like that's not that big a loss. Like, no, it, it's not, it's just good to see that at least USA was trying to go after him right. instead of just letting him walk into the Mexican side. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the best we can do is, is bring him in and show him what they can be a part of, show him that if they're good enough, they'll be a part of the squad. Um, and if they choose to play for a different country, cause they feel more identified and connected with that country, more power to them. If they do it just because they feel like they actually can get on the field, you know, I don't disrespect that at all. I, I support that. Um, go where you're wanted, go where you'll actually be useful. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I think we are done talking about the USMNT. Now, Daniel, it is time for my part of the show. Oh, so you're a guest host and you just come in here with your part of the show. Okay. That makes sense. I don't care what you have to say at this point. It is my time to talk about Villa and how much you have not talked about the other 14 in the Premier League throughout your podcast with Della. You guys have talked about the top six a lot. And I mean, I understand that the top six are the most popular quote unquote top six, because technically they're not the top six in the table, but they are the top most popular six within British football. So If those listeners who don't know, Aston Villa finished 11th in the table this past season, and they have just completed their first signing of the, of the summer transfer window for Emiliano Buendia of Norwich city. He was the championship player of the season. He is an Argentinian national uh, player who is playing alongside the likes of Messi and uh, also Aston Villa teammate now. Emiliano Martinez, who was the goalie. And uh, I just want to say, hear your takes about how that might fit into uh, how that might make Villa better in the, in the sense, Daniel. Well, first off, I just want to say, don't make it seem like we're just hating on Austin Villa over here. I, I don't, I don't think you're hating on the, on the other 14. I just think you guys really, I won't say push the top six, but I understand, like, they're the most popular within British football, so I know why you talk about them. They have the most fans, so it's not like you guys don't like the other 14, but that's just what you have to talk about. 
But I mean, we don't talk about like Genoa a lot. They're like a mid-table Serie A team. I, they're my team, but I don't we bring talk them. Talk about them. They're your Italian team that you like, and that's the team that you support in Italy. If that's the club, the team that you support the most, probably, I would expect that you talk about them. I'm not saying you talk about them a lot, but I would expect you talk about them a little bit more than you do. Well, I could talk about them. Nobody cares about Genoa. They're just like some crappy team that plays really defensive garbage soccer in Italy. No one wants to hear about that. No one wants to hear about Augsburg in the Bundesliga or like Huesca in Levante in, in Spain. We don't talk about those teams. You know, we only talk about we only talk about the teams at the top. If you're not top four, top six, like you're not getting on this podcast. We're, we're a front running podcast. Leicester City till I die. All right. Well, I didn't hear you talk about Villa beat Liverpool 7-2 at all, so. Um, to be fair, I don't think we had might not have been a podcast. Yeah, I don't think uh, we had been born yet as a podcast. Or otherwise, we definitely would have talked about that more so. Clowning Liverpool, but yes, we would have talked about that. Um, Okay, back to Buendia. Well, I'll 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 let you pass on Buendia because I don't know how much you know about him. Well, I don't. I know that he was the championship player of the season. I know he had a lot of interest from other Premier League teams. I, I certainly know there's a lot of talk from Arsenal fans that they wanted to get him. Um, and if you pair him with with Ollie Watkins and they're keeping Jack Realish, all signs point to that, right? Uh, yes, I mean technically, I have seen reports that Grealish is Man City's number one target, but I I highly doubt that Grealish is going to leave this this season, considering how much Villa have been spending in their transfer market and the players that they have been bringing in. I truly believe that Grealish isn't going to leave unless Villa take a step back. Like if they finish below 11th or maybe even below 8th this upcoming season, then he might leave. But I think he's going to stay this season. And as long as Villa keep progressing up and up the table and show that they are willing to spend money and make the team better, I think he will stay. Because there were also – there was a video that came out today from, uh, from England camp that had an Italian reporter talking to Grealish basically comparing him to Francesco Totti and how Grealish plays, I won't say plays like him, but plays somewhat like him and how much he has able to been able to stay loyal to one team so far throughout his career. And it seemed like Grealish was happy to hear that people are talking about him that way. So I think he's going to stay as long as Villa are able to keep progressing throughout his career. Okay. I I have no idea if that's true or not, but that sounds true enough. So I will will definitely believe that. Grealish is a, a great player. He should start for England. I know England's pretty stacked, and, and Southgate only plays his defensive players. So I don't know if he'll start for them. But he's if he's healthy, he's definitely starting over over guys like Sterling. And I'd, I'd start him over Foden, even though Foden's the hot name. Um, and I think Foden plays on the left and Grealish on the right, but yeah, I, I think Grealish is one of the, one of the more underrated players because he plays for Austin Villa and, and podcasts don't talk about Austin Villa. So they don't know about him. I mean, plus Grealish was hurt and missed like 11 or 12 games this season. So that also hurt him, but yes, I think Grealish should be starting for England along with Foden, but it'll probably be like Sterling and Rashford and then like, Mount and Henderson and Rice, but that's neither here nor there. The next point I would like to make about Villa, Daniel, have you heard about the links between Aston Villa and James Ward-Prowse of Southampton? 
I've not heard about these links, but that would be a big step up for their midfield because I know that's kind of the the one point in their team that they're lacking. Um, I know they had Barkley in on loan last year. Um, who who are their other midfielders? Remind me. Uh, well, they're they're that's sitting. They, they've played they've played a four two three one for the most of the season, and the two sitters were Douglas Luis, who is a Brazilian international, and. Uh, John McGinn, who is a Scottish international, but yes, they did have Ross Barkley on loan from Chelsea. He had a, he had a very fiery and good start to the beginning of his loan, but definitely died off towards the end. Yeah. I, I know about Louise and, and McGinn. Those guys are good defensive players, but McGinn's okay going forward. Louise doesn't really offer too much. So I think Ward Prowse would be a great like combo to pair with Louise. Louise is the more defensive midfielder and prowess is the more spray the ball um pass it around type guy he's also good on set pieces i know they got Grealish who probably takes set pieces for them but ward prowess so will probably be better than him and, and take over on those duties it's it's not even a matter that Grealish takes them it's a matter that Grealish gets fouled so much i believe he was the most fouled player in the premier league and still missed about, like I said, about 11 or 12 games. So just imagine Grealish and Ward-Prowse on the same pitch for the same team. Grealish getting fouled that much and Ward-Prowse with his set-piece prowess being able to just do that. And they haven't, like, Villa haven't had a set-piece master. I mean, Connor Hurahan, who is an Irish international, was pretty good, but he, he wasn't that good defensively. He wasn't that good in other parts of the game, so they loaned him out to Swansea for the second half of the season, which, in my guess, he'll probably get bought by Swansea. So they'll be needing somebody to uh, take the set pieces for them next season. And I think Ward-Prowse would be a great asset in that sense and just overall. Yeah, I think that team could fight for Europa League. I think definitely Europa Conference. They could That team definitely... Uh, right around the top seven in the Premier League if if they're healthy for, for 30, 35 games. Um, you could, I don't want to say you could expect Europe, but that definitely could be an expectation because um, that team, when healthy was last year, was pretty good. Um, the, the, the defense kind of worries me, aside from Martinez. Um, I know you guys like to, to buff up Mings, but I think Mings is overrated, to be honest. He, he does some things well, but he's just – too error prone. He makes like one or two mistakes a game that leads to a pretty big opportunity. And sometimes it doesn't cost you. And other times it's the reason you lose. Um, and he, he does good things. I'm talking bad on him right now. Um, and sometimes he's the opposite. He'll make one or two like really good plays. And you're like, damn Tyrone, like that was hella good. Um, but I think he's, he's a little overrated by Villa fans. Cause he's their He's their international guy. I, I do understand what you're saying. Mings has made a decent amount of errors that have led to goals by other teams. But Matt Target made a huge step up at left back from last year to this year. Matty Cash at right back was an amazing buy from Nottingham Forest. He got hurt the last two or three games of the season, but he should be back no problem next year. He should be, and he's only 23, I believe. So he's only got more time to improve. Their other center back, Ezri Kansa, is, I believe, also only 23. So he, And he 
a lot of people are saying he's uh, well a lot of villa fans are saying he might actually be a better center back than mings and mings is the one who's the who's the england international because mings is the one that does a lot of like if they're kicking the ball out long it's mings if they're trying to play through the middle it's mings making that pass Kansa does a lot of the stuff more defensively so a lot of villa fans thinks he is the he is actually the better defender overall so i think villa's back five with target mings Kansa, cash and uh martinez i think that is a very solid back five to don't laugh at martinez that is how he actually pronounces his name dan let's see it is not martinez it is Martinez. If he wants to be pronounced like that, I'll call him Martinez. But yes, I believe that back five is very good to build off of. The last, the last point I'd like to talk about for Villa is right now their head, their head of recruitment is Rob McKenzie, who was the head of recruitment for Leicester City when they bought Rirad Mares and uh, Angolo Conte. And right now, Villa are looking at. I believe he's 18. He could be 19. A very young CDM from shit. I could get this wrong. I believe it's Metz in France. His name is Pape Matarsar. I've seen a few compilation videos. Of course, the compilation videos always make him look good. But I am very interested I would be happy if Villa got him. I'm not saying that he should be starting right away. But could this possibly be another gem found? You probably have no idea who the fuck this is. And I, I believe- Yeah, I, I have no idea who he is, but I do know that France just has a crap load of talent. There's just so much talent in France. Like, Ligue 1 is not the best league because the top teams don't spend the most, but their players are, like, super freaking good. Like a ton of the exports that come out of Liga go to other places. And yeah, there's a lot of flops. There's also a lot of good players that come out of France. That's just because they export so many players. Some of them are going to be good. Some of them are not going to be good. Um, So I don't really know a lot about this guy. But if you're telling me that he's been playing pretty regularly at Mets and Villa are picking him up, he could be a decent option. We'll see. I'll have to see him play five games before I make an assessment on his uh, play. Yeah. And I mean, I if it was just random Villa head of scouting making this decision, I'd definitely be questioning. But since it is Rob McKenzie, who was the head of uh, recruitment at Leicester when, like I said, they bought Mares and Conte, I believe that this is a this is a very good sign that Villa are in the right direction, buying the right players, especially at a young age, and not just trying to buy older players who are proven in the Premier League. They're trying to buy players maybe at a bit of a of a discount, which Saar and Buendia and Ward-Prowse wouldn't really be at a discount, but they're buying the right players, the right young players, who they still have a chance to make a a profit on if they were to sell them. Yeah. I think Villa, uh, we, I thought it was wolves a couple of years ago who had the best chance to uh, kind of breaking in to that top seven, top six, whatever you want to call it. I think Villa are definitely that, that next challenger in the premier league. Um, Everton took a step back with, with losing their, their manager, Carlo Ancelotti. 
Um, they're probably going to lose some players, some recruitment as well. So usually they're kind of the team that's that's pushing on the door. But I feel like Villa, just with the amount of money being pumped into that club and, and some of the talent they got right now, if they can piece it together, um, I think they have a real shot. Um, what do you think of the coach? What do you think of Dean Smith, right? What do you think yeah, of him leading the line? There's There's a lot of Villa fans who think that, you know, you need like a, a fairly big name coach. Like Dean Smith isn't a name to really get you out of your seat. So like he's not Smithinho. He's not one of the one of the Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French coaches that'll really get you excited. But if you look at what he's done at Villa, when he came in, Villa were like 13th in the championship in October, November. And then that same season, he got them up to fifth. He got them in the championship playoff. They won the championship playoff and got them in the Premier League. That's that next season. They were down in 19th, 18th place in the Premier League. They had four games left. They needed seven points. They got the seven points. Watford shit the bed and didn't get any points. And Villa stayed up. By the, by the god of Orlan Neeland, who saved that beautiful goal in the first game back against uh, against Sheffield United. And if you know what I'm talking about, good on you. But And then this season, Dean Smith brought them from 17th to 11th. Until he has proven that he can't take Villa that next step, I think Dean Smith is the right man for the job. Until he's proven that he has stagnated and can't keep pushing them forward, there's nothing wrong with Dean Smith. And every season before he was at Villa with Brentford and uh, Warsaw, I believe. That's how you pronounce it. It's not how it's spelt, but that's how you pronounce it, I believe. Yeah. He's, he's done very well. He's done very well at those teams. So it's just a matter of Villa fans having faith in him. I know the, the ownership group have faith in him. But it's just a matter of the Villa, like the Villa fans won't get him fired just because of what they say. But the Villa fans just need to have faith in him and need to believe that he can do his job considering he has brought them further and further every year that he has coached there. Yeah, I feel like soccer teams get rid of coaches way too quickly. And part of that is because that's just the nature of the sport with relegation. That if a coach isn't getting the best out of the players and you're in any kind of danger, you try to get someone else in there to to get the best out of them. But I feel like there's also something there with with soccer coaches with continuity. Um, you see it with most of the bigger clubs that if they have a coach for three, four, five, six, ten years or whatever, fifteen years, you know, your Sir Alex's, your Arsene Wenger's. I feel like that you can build so much more with with one coach over a longer period of time, you know, maybe you don't give them 10 years, but you give them two years, you know, how many soccer coaches get not even a year or get one year and then they're gone. Shout out Chelsea and Abramovich. Exactly. You know, Chelsea. yes, Yes, they were able to win the champions league this year with Tuchel. But if you look historically at how Abramovich has uh, traded coaches, he has a very short leash and it'll be interesting to see how long Tuchel has at this club. If he doesn't perform well at the beginning of next season. Yeah, like what percentage uh, would you give that Tuchel's here in three years? Like, oh, almost like, zero. Like I would almost. say like 10%. Yeah. 
like, yeah, it's super low because he's going to go through a downturn in form. They're going to lose like three out of five games. And the owner's going to be like, get this guy out of here. Like, I don't care. He won me a Champions League and got to an FA Cup final. So I, I feel like Chelsea are just quick with the trigger because they got a an impatient owner, but other teams do it for survival. So I understand, but there's some teams in the middle who just, who just try to cycle through coach after coach instead of trying to build something. So I like that from Austin Villa. Yeah. I mean, look, look at Burnley. They've had Sean Dyche for close to 10 years now. If it, I think it's been close to 10 years. Well, they haven't like, I think they've gone to a Europa league once in that time. They've pretty much, once they got up into the premier league, They've been a steady Premier League team this whole time. Yes, they're not fun to watch. They play a very defensive style of of soccer. But he plays in a way that he knows he is going to stay in the Premier League. He is going to stay up. And I think Burnley appreciate that, at least the owners do, in the sense that, hey, we're going to keep this Premier League money. We're going to do everything we can to stay in the Prem. And Sean Dyche makes that happen. All right, that's enough uh, mid-table Premier League talk for me. Ooh, you know, hey, you could you could start your own chat about the uh, the mid-table I, teams. You could just watch every every league for like the eight through like fourteen. Just watch those six teams or whatever every weekend, and just get like a mid-table talk going. I I know I'm just giving you shit. Yeah, but I. Anything else you want to say you've thought of about the U.S. men's national team? Anything else before we uh, we sign off here? Uh, not really. I think everything I've had to say has been uh, been said so far. The questions at goalie and striker still need to be sorted out. There's good competition there. And uh, hopefully everybody can stay healthy for uh, uh, World Cup qualifying. Yeah. That's really really all I got to say. Health is most important. We don't want any of our players getting hurt. Um, we still do have more competitive games this summer. We, I say we as in the U.S. men's national team, there's a Gold Cup starting July 10th, I want to say. But that's not going to be the the quote-unquote first team for the U.S. That's going to be a lot of reserves and younger players, correct? Correct. Don't, yeah, don't take it from us. Take it from Coach Greg Berhalter. He literally said that pretty much any player that played in the Nations League will, will get the summer off to – uh, recover and just rest and just recoup their bodies from a long European season and get ready for the next season. Um, and we also got uh, our women playing in the Olympics coming up. That's going to be a good ass tournament in Japan. Hopefully they can be the first team to, to win a world cup and Olympics in the same cycle. Um, and then world, world cup qualifying will start in September. Um those will be the next games that matter. And I'm very confident that we will not have another Cuba situation this year around that we will be celebrating that we'll be making the world cup and hopefully we'll be able to do it as soon as possible. Um, we, hopefully we don't have to wait for the last qualifying game to qualify. Yeah, that's sounds about good up the USA and the Ocho. Thank you, Joseph, for joining me for this podcast of uh, soccer, not football. Um, you stood in brilliantly, had a, had a good performance from you tonight. So thank you for that. Well, I, I appreciate to hear that. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. You might be, you might be joining me some more this summer just cause Dell is out and about, um, with his family enjoying himself. So 
know, I miss you, Della, but we'll, we'll, we'll hop back on a pod soon. Um, both me and you, Joe, and me and Della, we'll, uh, we'll do something like that. So, yeah, till next time, we'll catch you guys later. Peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah.